The biologist David George Haskell says, at first, sound on Earth was only stone, water, lightning, and wind. But then he says, sunlight found a new path to sound, life. He begins his new book with an invitation to listen and hear the Earth. Wherever life's voices are hushed or absent, we hear sounds largely unchanged since Earth cooled from its fiery start more than four billion years ago. Pressing against mountain peaks, wind yields a low and urgent roar, sometimes twisting into itself with a whip crack as it eddies. In deserts and ice fields, air hisses over sand and snow. On the ocean shore, waves slam and suck at pebbles, grit, and unyielding cliffs. Rain rattles and drums against rock and soil and seethes into water. Rivers gurgle in their beds. Thunderstorms boom and the surface of the earth echoes its reply. Sporadic tremors and eruptions of the underworld punctuate these voices of air and water sounding with geologic growls. And bellows. These sounds are powered by the sun, gravity, and the heat of the earth. Sun warmed air stirs the wind. Waves rise as gales strafe the water. Solar rays lift vapor, then gravity tucks rain back to earth. Rivers, too, flow under gravity's imperative. The ocean tides rise and fall from the pull of the moon. Tectonic plates slide over the hot, liquid heart of the planet. So living sound, of course, is animated by those biochemical dances and melodramas happening within every single cell. And every cell on the planet, whether it's a tiny, weeny little bacterial cell or a cell inside our own bodies, is a thrum with activity. And of course, all that activity then makes ripples and tremulations on the cell surface that flows out into the rest of the world. What interests you in going that far back? I'm thinking of those first living sounds, bacteria, those quiet murmurs you describe. Every sound has a story. The sounds of birds reveal their evolution and how they've moved around the world and how they relate to one another in their sexual dynamics. 
the sounds of bacteria, we get to stretch our ear back all the way to the dawn of cellular life to hear how sound first appeared and to understand what was the nature of the sound and did it communicate information? I am fascinated with how sounds came to be. And I think there's inherent worth in just knowing the stories of our home. And our home, of course, is planet Earth. So this, in a way, is a sort of looking at the deepest roots of our own forms of communication. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, David George Haskell is talking about the importance of sonic diversity. Human-created noise, he says, is drowning out the sound of a wild world. And in his book, he talks about the consequences. The burdens of noise cause ill health and poor learning, and it really limits our ability to be empathetic and creative. What the book is really about is the importance of listening, which he describes as a foundation for human ethics. His new book is called Sounds Wild and Broken. And Haskell says... Usually when we think of environmental problems, we're talking about climate change or pollution or mass extinctions. But he wants to include sound in here. He calls it a complementary frame. The environmental challenges are generally measured and discussed in the language of chemistry and statistics, concentrations of gases in the environment and trends and in pollutants or in species diversity. And those are really, really important ways of understanding the world. In no way am I suggesting we shouldn't be doing that. But life is made from interconnection. Life isn't just made of statistics and chemical concentrations. Without connection between individual organisms, whether those organisms are birds in a forest or humans living in a community or or trees connecting to one another through the air and their roots, all life requires connection from one entity to another. And for most animals, those connections take place through the realm of the senses. And so the senses, studying the senses in a way is a direct path to understanding what it is that makes make animals tick, what it is that gives us life. And then from the environmental context, anything then that breaks those sensory connections is then potentially very troublesome. So, for example, if whales and fish can no longer hear one another making their mating cries or if parents can't communicate with offspring, the social fabric of that animal society is broken apart. There may be enough food, there may be enough breeding sites, but if they can't hear one another or connect with one another in some other way, then the the viability of that population uh, will, will decline. In addition... Because sound, especially in in tropical rainforests and in the oceans where visual and chemical communication is very hard because they're such dense or murky habitats, the, the vitality of sound is both an indicator of the health of the ecosystem and part of what makes the ecosystem resilient. So when a tropical forest is cleared and the soundscape is massively simplified, we lose some of ecology and evolution's creative power. To, to respond to environmental challenges. So sound is not just an ornament. It's part of the, the, the very stuff of life that, that keeps both populations and individuals and whole ecosystems functioning. Say a bit more about that, because one of the insights from your work is that these animal voices are catalysts for innovation. And so when 
living beings connect, as you said. These, as as you write in the book, new possibilities appear. Ex- explain what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. It's something about sound that what brings forth some kind of dormant power. Right. <laughs> yeah. What is it? It sounds very mystical, but I mean this in, in a very practical sense at multiple yeah. levels. And I think, you know, giving a, a concrete example, say, of a spring peeper frog in the woods. Mm. That spring peeper frog has to find mates in order to pass on its genes, but also for the whole species to even be viable there. How is a tiny little frog that is the size of my thumbnail that is very well camouflaged? tiny little creature, how is it going to find another frog that is maybe 50, 100 meters away or even a mile away in this extremely complex environment? It would take years and years just to use visual searching to find a mate. It might take weeks or months to find just by sniffing out the other. But sound allows these creatures to live in very dense habitats and immediately, almost immediately, find one another at great distance. Not only can they find one another, but of course their voices encode meanings. Some of those meanings are fairly straightforward. For example, in the case of frogs, the frogs that can sing the loudest and the clearest and can keep going all through the night are the ones that have the fewest parasites and the ones that that, uh, have the most physiological vitality. And in organisms like uh, many birds that have a vocal culture, for example, things uh, creatures like crows and ravens and jays, and and their uh, their cousins, the humans, and and other communicative mammals, whales, dolphins, every little nuance of sound carries different levels of meaning about the outside world. What kind of predators are present? Hmm. What's the situation with food? What's happening with the seasons? Was it a cold winter last winter or not? Where are the fruiting trees? So all kinds of information is encoded. And sound is almost like telepathy because when one organism makes a sound almost instantaneously, I mean, at 340 meters per second, that sound, that signal is transmitted across space and through barriers. So when you're in a forest, you usually... I mean, most of us have, or even a city park, you don't see most of the birds that are present there, but you hear them. Mm-hmm. And for birds, this isn't just, well, that's kind of fun or it's, it's, it's a lovely thing to experience in, in the park. This is the, 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 the stuff that makes their lives possible. So without sonic communication, we would lose most of the birds, most of the frogs, the whales, and, and many of the fish because their social lives would not be possible. And so the functions that they bring to ecosystems would be gone. On top of that, sonic communication within species acts as a generative power because once sound gets used in mating signals, it turns out that evolution then really goes crazy and, and, and has this improvisational quality that magnifies and, and exaggerates the sound and causes species to diverge from one another. So sonic connection is actually a powerhouse of speciation in some groups. Let me ask about the human dimension then, because one of the ideas, one of the principles you write about is what you describe as this necessary sensory foundation for human ethics. What do you mean there? It seems like it comes down to we need to be listening to the voices of others. 
Well, we do, and we understand that in our everyday human lives, right? So if you're in a relationship with another person and you're not listening to that other yeah. person, yeah. we all know that that relationship is not going to last very long. If it does, it's not going to be a very, very healthy one. The same thing if I'm a, you know, living in a neighborhood and I'm not listening to my human neighbors around me. You know, I don't know which way to vote. I don't know which way to be a good neighbor to others. The same is true on a larger scale in the community of life, that now we're such a, a huge and powerful species. We humans are just, I mean, there are billions of us. We have vast appetites. We're sequestering most of the world's productivity to ourselves. If we're not listening to other beings, how can we hope to be good neighbors to other species? How can we hope to be good mm. conservationists or land managers or neighbors to the other species who we know we depend on these other species without forests, without rivers, without soil? Of course, human life wouldn't be possible. So, so there's a degree of self-interest in, in listening, just as there are, is in a human relationship. Even if I don't feel like listening to my partner, it's in my interest to listen to them because otherwise, you know, I'm going to be out of relationship and, and lose the good things that I gain. So this is a, a sort of a, in the book, I frame this as a, listening as a, as a good foundation for ethics, but it's also a good foundation for self-preservation. Hmm. The other thing I'd add to all this, though, is that listening is also a source of joy. It's not just sort of dreary work, you know, the foundation for ethical discernment. Being clued into the birds and the frogs and the various human sounds in, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, is this source of connection which expands. It's, it's, it's a, expands our imaginations. It connects us to other beings. Mm. It, it, it for, allows us to have new ideas, to connect in ways that are fruitful and joyful, as well as telling us some things that are broken in our neighborhoods. And, and as a teacher, this is one of the things that I try and invite my students into is going outside and just listening for the sheer, sheer pleasure of it without mm. any goal of, oh, I need to learn X, Y, and Z. It's just, no, I want to tune in because I want to be present to the world that I'm in. We only get a few years on this planet, so why not actually pay attention while we're here? You know, I, one of the things you write about is that there is a difference, which we'll get to in a, in a moment, between a country blackbird and a blackbird in the city because the sonic environment is different. But what about the human differences? Um, and I'm wondering, in a time when there wasn't such industrial, such a cacophony of industrial noise, for example – in big cities. Did we, were we in some way, this, I can't imagine this is measurable, but, but surely you have an idea. Did we, did we listen better? Were we more creative? Did we get along better in some way? That is, you know, how did the sonic environment where we were listening to nature was more a part of our sonic environment? Did that change us creatively? Did that make us I don't know, less warlike. I don't know what, does it change us? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, by we, I think we have to be clear about who we're talking about when we're discussing we, because for, say, in the Middle East and Western Europe, people have been living in cities for uh, for millennia now. Yeah. And so yeah. sort of trying to excavate the pre 
urban environment is is a challenge. And what's fascinating, actually, is the very first written records anywhere on the planet, the first stories that were written down on clay tablets uh, 5,000 years ago, uh, around 5,000 years ago, were complaints about urban noise. <laughs> so right, right from the get-go... People, and these were the scribes, of course, of that time, who were probably, you know, the quiet types who liked to sit there with their tablets and their styluses, uh, writing about things. Uh, they were complaining about noise. So, so right from the get-go, urban noise was was noted as problematic. But, but the great thing about humans is we're very adaptable, very flexible, and urban noise also becomes part of, if you grow up within it, becomes part of the signature of home. Uh, and this is a slightly different uh, topic, but I do think we need to acknowledge the diversity of acoustic experience. And for people who grow up in the countryside, say, live for quite a few years in, in rural Tennessee, where in the in the late summer and the autumn, the sounds of the insects are absolutely incredibly loud. I mean, ear-splittingly loud. And for people who grow up there, that's great. It's very relaxing sound. People who come from the city like friends who might be visiting from New York City or something, come and say, how can you sleep in this? I can't <laughs> sleep. It's terrible. And then, of course, when people who are used to the countryside go and stay in the city, they say, I can't sleep here because there's too many sirens, there's too many unexpected noises. It just feels weird and dangerous. And I, how can you possibly function in this soundscape? Well, we get used to the sounds that we're brought up in. That's not to diminish the fact that some forms of noise are physiologically harmful, even when you're used to them. Yeah. But coming back to the question of what were we better at listening before urbanization, I think we can do some cross-cultural comparisons now and indirectly assess that question and say for people who live, say, in relation to the forest, away from cities, cultures, for example, the Quechua and the Warani in, in, uh, in parts of the Amazon forest, are highly attuned to the sounds of non-human beings, not just as a source of amusement, but a source of understanding what is the nature of the forest? How are things changing today? How have they changed over the decades? And you can learn that by listening to the monkeys and the birds and the insects and the sounds of the river. And, and for these cultures, I think it's notable that listening also involves listening to the songs of trees and the way that living rivers have their own songs. And so there isn't a, a clear division made between uh, animals and, and, and non-animal beings that all the earth has a song. And listening to it is an important guide, an important practical guide to feeding yourself, looking after your community and your family, but also understanding bigger questions like what is the meaning of life how should we live in relation to others much of that comes from careful listening in the forest of course when you live in the city you need a practice of shutting off your ears yeah. in order to function so the challenge is not that cities are bad i think cities actually if we're going to be live sustainably on this planet we need to live more in cities because cities are much more efficient in many uses of so-called resources uh, than, than living way out in the countryside for, for most people. But if we're living in the city, of course, we need to shut down our senses to protect ourselves and focus. But we also occasionally need practices where we can open up and listen and smell in spaces that are safe for that kind of practice.
You know, it's interesting. One of the things you mentioned in the book is that we, we were talking earlier about the, you know, sound in bacteria. Uh, and it's interesting that there haven't been that many papers or that much research that's examined mm-hmm. the sound in bacteria. And you wonder if there isn't some kind of cultural bias here at play. Um, you say that in your own training, you were you were never asked to use your ears in a laboratory experiment. Absolutely, I think I, I think there really is a strong cultural bias, not just in science education, but in many aspects of our culture. For example, in architecture, a great deal of value is placed on the visual, mm-hmm. but often very little attention is given to how will this building sound. The same thing with landscape architecture and even horticulture. Yeah, this plant looks great or this expansive lawn or this this way of arranging a neighborhood or, or a park, but it sounds terrible because the leaf blowers are required to keep it looking this way and the lawn mowers. And so beautiful looking landscapes, especially those that, are, that are, have been designed by people, often sound terrible because we haven't honored the mm. oral aspect of being in a landscape as much as we have the visual. And certainly in education, we spend a lot of time uh, looking at things, looking at graphs. And of course, you know, looking at stuff is, is, is important, but also listening, I think, is an important part of this. People who teach so-called foreign languages within human culture are some of the few people in education who encourage students to listen of course, music teachers do this do this as well. But beyond that, say within science and certainly within biology, often there's most biology majors, I think, can graduate even with a very high GPA and not know any of the sounds of the species singing in the quad outside the laboratory building. And that seems to me an awful loss and a huge lost opportunity, particularly in a world which is crying out for us to listen. David George Haskell, he's a professor of biology and environmental studies at Suwannee, the University of the South. His book is Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. us to this um, this road, a country road in France that you write about with these fossils, the oldest direct physical evidence of sonic communication. T- take us to this insect wing fossilized in this Permian rock. Yes. Yeah, so we're on a fairly untraveled part of uh, southern France. So this isn't down on the coast in Nice and, and Cannes, but if you go up into the mountains a little bit, away from from the bustle of the coast, you get into the part of the Massif Central, which is part of a a a complex series of mountains in the the central part of France. And one portion of this very complex collision of different kinds of rocks dates to the Permian. And and the rocks are like the color of raw liver. They're almost almost kind of a dark, purpley, bloody color. And in a few places within these rocks are the remains of little mud flats and rivulets around ponds and creeks that used to run through this otherwise pretty dry landscape. And 
insects from 270 million years ago, the remains of those insects, are still found in this old mud, which we now call rock. So the mud, of course, dried out. Within the mud, there were the wings of dead insects that got fossilized. And now when we break open the rock, what do we see? We see these these impressions of insect wings that are often, when you look, particularly look under a microscope, almost like the impression of an insect wing that has been pressed into mud like yesterday or last week. You can see all the details of the veins and the shape of the wing, really extraordinary level of detail. And from that, we can deduce that one of these insects was the first known singing creature in the terrestrial world. I say first known because, you know, next year someone may dig up another fossil that's 10, 20 million years older and, and push the date further back. And that's the glory of paleontology is that everything is, all our knowledge is, is provisional. But this wing has on it a little raised ridge with a series of nubs along the ridge. It looks very much like the ridge that modern crickets and katydids use to make their sound. When you hear a cricket chirping, what it's doing is rubbing the base of its wings together. This fossil, this fossilized wing, has a ridge that, that has no other possible function other than to make the sound when, when the wings are rubbed together. The ridge is not quite as, as beautifully uh, sort of organized, and the, 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 the nubs on the ridge are, are irregularly spaced, unlike the beautifully regular spacing of, of the nubs on the ridges of, um, of modern insects. But nonetheless, we can look at this fossil and imagine these first earthly voices rising up from, from the vegetation along the creek in this very dusty interior of a giant supercontinent. I I like the um it's an appealing image I think because you say that um these insect sounds they're the most possibly the most ancient sort of sound and that when you hear crickets chirping for example at night and everyone everyone does in some way or another for the most part I guess depending on where you live but in in that sound you're hearing you're you're as you say transported to the first Days of song on Earth. Yeah, so the, reading up about this and and taking these measurements changed my experience of lit, listening, particularly in the in the late summer, where the katydids and the crickets and and other insects become particularly loud and noticeable in in many parts, at least in the temperate world, certainly over most of North America. And on some evenings, you really don't hear much. I mean, you may hear cars driving past and, and human sounds. But the birds have gone quiet. Most other creatures are quiet. And what do you hear is a soundscape dominated by these insects. Even in the middle of New York City, when I was living up in in Brooklyn and, and also in the northern part of Manhattan, walking out in the park in the evening in, in August, early September, katydids and crickets singing. And instead of it just being, well, those are just bugs singing, I'm thinking, wow, I'm being carried back more than 200 million years and i'm soaking in this very primal communicative sound and it's such a delight to sort of swim into sink into that experience i want to ask about um, one of the things you mention in the book you write about 
um, sort of the human brain and the way it perceives these layers of sound. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, there's this acoustic psychologist, a, a woman named Diana Deutsch, who you write about could could trick the brain into hearing these phantom words and these in these melodies, um, and I wonder what that says about the human brain and the way we interpret sound. Say, say something about that. Well, I think it tells us that the human brain is a meaning-seeking organ. Even <laughs> when meaning and stories and patterns are not there, we will create them, and this is true, of course. People are familiar with optical illusions where you can trick the eye. Well, you're not tricking the eye. In fact, you're tricking the, the processing parts of the brain to misinterpret what the eye is seeing. And the same is true for sounds. When you play sounds that essentially don't have any words within them, but play them repeatedly in these patterns, people start to hear things emerging from that. And that's not because the, the words are actually present in the sound they're hearing. It's because the brain is struggling to reconstruct and, and to extract meaning from what it hears. Because mostly what, what do our ears and our brain do? Somebody is speaking to us. It's not unreasonable for the brain to then use that sonic information to extract information like what words and sentences and meanings are being conveyed here. Or when you're out in the street, oh, that's the sound of a jackhammer or of a crow flying over or mm -hmm. I'm hearing an airplane. All of these sounds are quick interpretations that our brain makes that by and large work very well. But they're interpretations because sonic information is often ambiguous. And, and I think I have, I'm a person who has a great deal of problem with tendonitis in my hands. And one of my continual frustrations is that speech recognition software is still to this day, despite all the technological marvels that we're surrounded with, unable to listen in the way that another human being can listen to me and understand and fully transcribe correctly everything that I have said. And that's because the computers are still not able to do what our brains do, which is to take ambiguous sounds like the word ah or the, all, all these very short words that in the context of a sentence absolutely make sense to another human being who speaks the same language as you do. But in terms of just the raw physicality of the sound are highly ambiguous. And of course, AI is, is making strides at, at getting around some of this. But it's a reminder that our brain is, is trying to construct things and to extract meaning. And then the brain is also what it's doing is storing up what we hear as memories. And those memories are carried for decades and decades, unlike, say, chimpanzees and gorillas and our other very close cousins in the great ape family. We have very long acoustic memory because mm -hmm. our culture is mostly very is vocal Whereas their culture is very sophisticated, but it's mostly observational and tactile rather than being largely oral in the way that, that humans are. So that's affected our memory in a way that you can hear a word spoken to you that you haven't heard spoken to you in 50 years and you will understand it. <laughs> or, you know, I had, I had this experience of hearing a, a blackbird singing and echoing in the courtyard in, in Paris that I hadn't heard in, in almost 50 years. And I was transported immediately back to my childhood because that was a sound that I heard as a little kid growing up in our apartment in Paris. That memory, I had no idea that there was a memory there. I had no conscious memory of 
there ever being a blackbird, I had to check with my parents who confirmed to me, oh, yeah, when you were three years old, there was a blackbird that every spring sang right outside the window, and it had that echo within the courtyard. So my memory back there, my acoustic memory, was like way better than my conscious memory. Wow. Well, you say it traveled with you all those years, then it woke your earliest memories. And and you write that, as, as you just said, that, that human experience of long-term auditory memory, that's... That is different um, from from other animals. It's interesting that the cultures of monkeys and Mm -hmm. um, apes, as you say, that's more tactile, more visual, that human culture is transmitted by sound. What does that say about human nature, do you think? What is that about, do you think? I think it tells us that we've become bird people. So so we're a strange species in that we are, of course, we're primates. Uh, most things about our biology very clearly indicate that our close cousins are, are, are primates and bonobos and chimpanzees and gorillas, orangutans, and, and we inherit a great deal from the common ancestors with those creatures. Yet one thing we have done is really elaborate our our vocal expression, the nuances in that vocal expression, and and the and of course developing it into things like human language and music that is more like the way many birds connect with one another, like the ravens and the toucans and other other birds that have very sophisticated vocal cultures than it is like our closest relatives. So I think of our, our oral culture as almost sort of a weird cultural chimera between we're primates, but we've, we've taken on some of this bird-like characteristic. Of course, we're not the only mammals to do this. Whales and other marine mammals also have sophisticated vocal cultures as well. But in the terrestrial realm, the closest analog are some of the birds, which is why hmm. we find birds so compelling. If you look at the the animals that are used as symbols of meaning and of God and of connection, they're often their birds, right? The Holy Spirit comes down in the Christian tradition as a dove, not as a cicada or a, some primate or a mouse. And the, the symbols of countries tend to be things like eagles and symbols of spring, are nightingales and other thrushes singing rather than chirping crickets or the little ode aromas and chittering sounds that squirrels make. So we're pretty cued into birds for, for mm. a good reason, is that we're mm. sharing a sensory modality with them. David George Haskell. His book is Sounds Wild and Broken. I don't want to lose sight of a really important part of the of the book, which is you explore these various elements of the acoustic crisis we're in right now. And and happening, interestingly, you say, at a time when we are as a species at the sort of the, the apogee of sonic creativity. Um, you know, never have the sounds of the earth been so rich, yet now this diversity has been so threatened. That's an interesting connection that I hadn't put together before. And it's a paradox because our language, of course, is really, really sophisticated. We, we're very good at listening to one another. Even the simplest sentence spoken from one person to another is an extraordinary feat of vocal production and of of listening and in, interpretation and then it's you know as if language was not enough we're also musicians 
instrumental music puts us in connection with one another in a way that transcends what words can do, but is just as sophisticated, multi-layered, and full of story and, uh, and nuance. So, so human music and language is extraordinary, and yet we are also the species that is pumping so much noise into many environments that we're erasing the possibility for life for many species and degrading the quality of life for many others. Our clearing of habitats and modification of habitats is mm. silencing a lot of the glorious diversity of, of sound making around the world. In the oceans, in the prairies, in, in forests around the world, this is ongoing. And we're a species that more and more is turning inwards, is, is listening only to the voices of our own species rather than the voices of, the, of what philosopher David Abram calls the more than human world. And the apps on our phone and social media and so on do a great job of grabbing our attention and, of course, manipulating our attention in various ways. One of the under-discussed consequences of that is that we have almost no incentive to tune into the voices of the birds and the frogs and the insects and actually mm -hmm. really listen because that is not part of the algorithm. Uh, and the, so the more that we get tuned into this digital world, which again, David Abram argues, the reason we're so attracted to the speaking phone and the talking fridge and these technologies that interact with us is because we've forgotten to listen to the birds and the rocks and the rivers. And so this electronic gadgetry is filling a deep hunger within us, but it's always unsatisfactory because we're just listening to ourselves. Whereas what that hunger wants is, us for, is for us to listen to other beings and to attend to what we might learn there. This was interesting. You mentioned how when, when COVID shut down much of San Francisco, the San Francisco traffic, this was in the spring of, of 2020, you say the background noise levels reverted to the 1950s. Talk a little bit about the effect there. This was remarkable. The sparrows, it seems, responded by by quieter, by lower-pitched songs? Yes. Yeah, so I think many people experienced this. I mean, whether we were uh, locked down or, or still going to work as, as essential workers, the, the soundscapes around us changed. And you know, more sirens, of course, in, in cities close to hospitals, but mostly much less traffic noise, much less industrial noise, many fewer airplanes. And suddenly we we became aware of the sounds that were around us. So there was this, this opening of, of attention to, to yeah. non-human beings. But for the creatures that are out there singing, they did, presumably didn't know what was going on. For them, it's like, wow, suddenly the volume of the background noise has been turned way down. <laughs> we can then respond accordingly. And it turns out that many birds in cities have modified their songs to fit in with the urban soundscape. And the urban soundscape is mostly lots of low-frequency rumbling, roaring sounds. Even if, even if you're not standing right on a highway in an apartment, if you turn on a tape player or digital recorder and look at it on the screen, you'll see there's a smear of low-frequency sound right down at the bottom. The bigger the city, the, the louder that, that smear is. So birds have responded by singing louder so that they can literally push through that noise. 
but also by singing at higher pitches, by eliminating the lower frequency parts of their song, adding trills and other fancy stuff up in the high frequency range. So it continues to be impressive, but just in a different way. And, and the higher frequencies aren't nearly as masked by the noise of industry and traffic. When all that noise went away for the sparrows in San Francisco, and these are white-crowned sparrows that scientists have been studying for decades and decades, most recently Elizabeth Derryberry and many of her colleagues, what they found was, and because they had this long-term record, they found that the sparrows during lockdown reverted to the style of singing that was pre-noisy. <laughs> so mm. they, they added some of these these elements to their songs, particularly the low-frequency ones that had not been present because there's no point making them in a noisy environment. I should point out that these sparrows have a long-term evolutionary experience of dealing with noise because some of them breed inland, others breed right on the coast where there's a lot of wave noise. And so it's been in their interest long before humans started making noisy cities to tune into the soundscape of their environment and to modify their song to fit in with the masking noise around them. It's not just sparrows that do this. Frogs that sing near rivers that are really loud tend to have much higher frequency sounds. But the sparrows on lockdown provided a particularly powerful example of the short-term adaptability of, of birdsong. So what does it mean when we humans try to talk over noise? What effect does that have on us? You ex maybe explain the Lombard effect. Yeah, so so we do this too. If you're in a noisy room, you will talk at a higher, you talk louder, of course, so you can be heard over the racket. You'll also talk at a higher pitch, and you'll you'll enunciate more so that your voice can can be heard through this. And this is a subconscious effect. In fact, Lombard, who was a 19th century doctor, used this method to figure out who was faking deafness. It turned out people were showing up in hospital pretending that they've been made deaf by their employer or the racket of the machinery in a factory they were working so they could get some kind of remuneration from the employer. Some people were really had been deafened by the terrible working conditions then. Others were faking it. And Lombard showed that you could play noise into one ear and people subconsciously would speak at a higher pitch and would speak louder, even though they, they were trying to, 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 um, to pretend to, be, to have been deafened. So this Lombard effect was, was first discovered in a rather peculiar sort of uh, workers' comp situation <laughs> in the 19th mm -hmm. century. Uh, but that now has been found to be true, not just in humans, but in birds, even fish, other vocal vertebrate animals all have this response that happens below the level of, of, of conscious perception and of conscious willing it to happen. It just happens automatically when we're in noisy environments. One of the things you write about is that the, these violations of this sensory environment. In all of this, you describe the opportunity, this, this door is how you put it, to empathic understanding of other species. Because you say we have a choice. We, we can choose a different sonic future. And it gets to a, another section of the book where you talk about the importance of celebrating this, the sensory richness of the world. Um, 
maybe you could tell us about the bell, the peace bell, um, because it's an important part of the way you tell this part of the story. Yeah, the peace bell is is one of the bells in the peace park in Hiroshima. And this is a peace park uh, commemorating the American bombing of, of, of Hiroshima. And visitors then, and I've been one of those visitors, you can swing the sort of a, a wooden striker and you can ring the bell. And of course, the bell is, is ringing out for peace. And this the sound of this bell, and in fact, the, the unified sound of all the bells in the Peace Park, is one of the sound, the hundred soundscapes of Japan that has been recognized by the Japanese government as part of an important element of, of national identity and of celebration of the sensory richness of Japan. And in doing this, the Japanese government has celebrated the great sounds of their country, both human and, and non-human sounds, and has treated sound as something that's worth honoring rather than just talking about sound as a nuisance. And so the, the Hundred Soundscapes of Japan, I think, is a wonderful example of uh, communities going beyond, say, just naming objects or places as significant, like here's a national park or a particularly significant art object in a museum, and extending that into the sensory realm. Here is a sonic experience that you can have that enriches your life, connects you to other people, and is culturally really important. And in fact, part of the intent of this was to encourage people to go on little trips and enjoy these sounds. And, and the great thing is the sounds, apart from the cost of travel, it's free. You can go and listen to the sounds of the, of the waves beating on the shore without any kind of admission ticket or anything. So the, the great thing about sensory delight is it's very dem democratic. It's open to all. And then the Japanese have also done this with the 100 best smells, the best aromas of Japan from mm -hmm. grilled eel to the smell of fruit blossoms to one of my favorites, the smell of used books in the used book area of Tokyo. Just a wonderful way of, of tuning people into the sensory delights and the sensory stories of their world. You ask near the end of the book, what is sound's future? And of course, as you point out, eventually, you know, this planet will collapse or will burn up. But as you put it, all leads to silence. But if all living sound is doomed, why care about creativity and diversity and, you know, the diminishment of this, of this moment? Because you say sound actually suggests a different answer. What is that? So sound by its very nature is ephemeral. All sound, whether it's speech or music or the sounds of, of the non-human world, starts in silence emerges into very brief life, and then falls into silence. Sound has value when we're listening to music or speech because it is ephemeral. It gives us an experience of beauty and order and narrative in the moment that then leads to silence. Sound is this amazing way of teaching us the value of ephemerality, which applies to my life and your life. It applies to, to the whole planet. 
sound also has value because it connects. It's like the nervous system for the living planet, except they're not actual physical nerves. We enlist the air as a neurotransmitter to connect one being to another. And from that, more vitality and life and resilience emerges. David George Haskell, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Doug. It's great to be with you. David George Haskell. He teaches at Sewanee, the University of the South. His book is Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us with comments or questions or suggestions at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Tim Slover and Benjamin Bombard. Our intern is Elle Cowley. Our executive producer is Carrie Watson. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 